Well, as we've been discovering, the book of Ephesians is a primer on Christian living. Chapters 1 through 3 teach us how to see ourselves. These chapters shape for us a new identity in Christ. You know, it's interesting to me that before Paul gives us the first command in this letter, before he says one word about what we should do, he encourages us with who we are. In Christ, you've gone from rags to riches. You're God's kid now. You've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. We're chosen, forgiven, adopted, redeemed, accepted, and sealed. Together, we're a third race. We're a new man. You see, it's only after we've been exalted to heavenly heights that Paul then begins to tell us how to navigate life on earth. That's the theme of the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6. Paul teaches us how to live our lives. And in chapter 5, verse 22, the subject matter hits close to home. In fact, it deals with the home. The relationships basic to family life, husbands and wives, parents and children. And this will be the focus of our studies over the next couple of months. And let me stress the importance of our passage this morning. You see, it's easy for me or you to be a Christian, to show grace and stand for truth in the cozy confines of the church. It gets more difficult in the workplace, but there we're still trying to be a witness. We're motivated to be loving and kind and patient with the lost people around us. No, the real test of our Christianity is how we behave at home when we let our hair down. When we feel free to be ourselves, are we tenderhearted and gracious and merciful to the people living under our own roof? How does your Christianity work in the hot house of relationship that we call family? Are you holy at home? I like what author Harold, Howard Hendricks used to say, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, don't export it. Marriage and family is where life makes up its mind. It's where we are what we are and live what we really believe. There's no bluffing the people at home. Well, for three weeks, we're going to talk about marriage. And then for three weeks after that, we're going to talk about parenting. Today, I want us to read Paul's entire text for husbands and wives. And then we'll go back and focus on the first few verses, verses 22 to 24. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. At a wedding, a professional photographer will on average take anywhere from between 500 and 1,000 pictures. And that's not including the pictures taken by Grandma and Uncle Bob and the selfies the bride snaps. It's been said the Civil War, the entire Civil War was covered by fewer photographs than are taken at a wedding today. Apparently, nuptials and negatives go hand in hand. And that's not only true of a husband and wife's wedding, their marriage should also be a photograph, a picture. You see, marriage is meant to be many things, a romance, a legal contract, a social arrangement, a working relationship. But above all else, marriage is a picture. Love shown in a marriage should be an illustration of Jesus and his church. Paul writes here in chapter 5, verse 32, marriage is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of spiritual realities. And this is what elevates marriage above all other human relationships. God assigns to marriage a divine significance. He shrouds it in holiness and he makes it sacred. God even vows to do his part to ensure its stability. Certainly God intends for your marriage to be a source of great personal happiness. But far more is at stake in marriage than just your own happiness. Marriage is a picture to a fallen world of spiritual truths. It's a divine snapshot. God intends for your marriage to preach the gospel, to dramatize his relationship, the relationship that exists between Jesus and his church. You know, God is into pictures. Examine the elaborate picture that was painted in the Garden of Eden with the first man and woman. God took from Adam's side from close to his heart and from under his arm, that which he would use to fashion for Adam a bride. Then he presented that bride to Adam. Centuries later, far from the Garden of Eden, on a barren hill in Jerusalem, God worked a similar miracle. A Roman soldier thrust a spear through Jesus' side. From close to his heart and from under his arm outflowed blood and water. The same blood that God now uses to cleanse and fashion folks to be married to his son. You see what happened in the garden with Adam happened on the cross with Jesus. Both operations produced a glorious bride. The garden is a picture of Golgotha. God is into symbols. Think for a moment about the power of symbols and pictures. See a skull and crossbones and you know not to touch. A cross or a swastika or an olive branch or even a Nike swoosh all unleash powerful emotions. This is why corporations copyright their slogans and their logos. Symbols are of great value in the marketplace. And symbols or types or pictures are vitally important to God. We find them throughout the Bible. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus said, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. I guess you could say Jonah had a well of a weekend. 
But Jesus continues, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's time in the whale's belly was a picture of the three days and three nights that elapsed between the cross and Jesus' resurrection. Jonah was a type of Jesus. Here's another powerful symbol or picture. God told Abraham to take Isaac to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his only son. But God never intended for Abraham to go through with the ordeal. His actions were meant to be a picture of what God would do years later on that same mountain, Mount Calvary. There the father offered his only son, Jesus, as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. No doubt Abraham's experience on Mount Moriah was high drama, but it portrayed a higher reality. And recall how upset it made God when his messenger Moses messed up the New Testament picture. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, they grew thirsty. And God told Moses to strike the rock and out would gush water. But when the need arose again, God said to Moses, This time speak to the rock and it will yield its water. You see, here's the New Testament picture that God was painting for future generations People have a spiritual thirst that can only be satisfied by miracle water from Jesus the rock. On Calvary, 2,000 years ago, God struck the rock. Now all we have to do is speak to the rock and ask Jesus for his living water and he'll satisfy our thirst. What a snapshot of salvation. But Moses marred the picture. You see, he was agitated with Israel's unbelief. And rather than speak to the rock, he struck it a second time. And God got angry, not with Israel, but with Moses. Moses not only misrepresented a patient God, but he distorted God's symbolism, God's picture. Jesus was to be struck only once, never again. Moses spoiled the New Testament picture and was punished. He never entered the promised land. And here's the moral to all of these stories. You see, God takes spiritual symbols seriously. And this is also true with marriage. The relationship between a husband and a wife is God's wedding photos. It's intended to be a picture. Marriage is a depiction of Christ and the church. And this is why your marriage will never see the promised land if you don't live out your part of the picture. Marriage is a voluntary role play of spiritual realities. And sadly, this is the aspect of marriage that sails over the heads of most married folk. They're oblivious. Perhaps they're not biblical enough or spiritually minded enough to realize what's at stake in their own marriage. You see, more is on the line in your marriage than just your own happiness. Or your mom and dad's opinion. Or what other folks think. Or even what's best for the kids. Hey, when a marriage gets in trouble, why is it nobody asks, what does God think? Hey, what's best for God? What would be pleasing to him? All too often, we fall victim to the daily grind. The hustle and bustle around us and we lose sight of the big picture. Our lives start spinning out of control and a lot of what we do no longer makes sense to us, even our marriage. We neglect our spouse and we forget the significance of marriage in general. The vows we took no longer ring in our ears. Couples lose sight of the overarching picture. They nurse little hurts and they forget the larger issues at play in their marriage. 
Here's an illustration. One of the most exciting spectacles in college football is performed by the Ohio State Buckeye Band. It's a routine called Script Ohio. The performance has been a tradition since 1936. Before a packed stadium of 105,000 Buckeye fans, the marching band spells the word Ohio across the field. The climax comes when one of the sousaphone players dots the eye. He struts out to a tuft of grass marked by the drum major, and then he bows to the crowd. I mean, the stadium goes nuts. Well, why don't you just see for yourself? Isn't that great? You see, here's my point. If you're watching those band members from the sidelines, down on the ground level, I'm sure their movements look confusing. They look chaotic. You can't make out what's being drawn on the field. You see, it's only when you're high in the bleachers. It's only when you're in the blimp overhead that you see what's really being spelled out. And this is true in a marriage. We're actors in a divine drama. God has a role for the wife to play. God has a role for the husband to play. And by each spouse staying in step, we can spell out heavy, eternal, timeless truths. But these roles are only seen. They're only understood and appreciated from a higher vantage point, from God's perspective. And that's why we have to stay above the day-to-day. On the playing field, marriage can look random, even chaotic at times. You don't see the root reason for all of the movement. But view a biblical marriage from the blimp, from God's perspective, and you see clearly what's going on. Marriage suddenly makes sense. From heaven's perspective, it's all being scripted according to plan. You know, it's interesting. One of the Ohio State band members, he made the statement, I'd rather dot the I before I die than be president because dotting the I is a bigger honor. (laughs) Here's another comment from one of the I-dotters. I've dreamed of this moment from an early age. This is one of the biggest days of my life. It's probably what a wedding would be like. And I couldn't agree more. The Buckeye Band's performance is exactly like a marriage. Every small movement in a marriage portrays A role in the big picture that God wants to paint. And if the Ohio State band members get all excited about this, if they feel this way about dotting the I, 
How much more privileged, how much more honored should we be in our part, playing our part in a divine drama? Imagine God is wanting to use you and your spouse and your marriage to snap a photograph for salvation for the world to see. Hey, far more than the 105,000 fans. Innumerable saints and angels are observing your marriage from heaven. Hey, you can be sure your kids are watching closely. Your friends and neighbors also see from the bleachers. Even strangers observe how marriage interacts. As I said before, there's a lot more at stake in your marriage than just your own personal happiness. German pastor Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a higher dignity and power, for it is God's holy ordinance. In your love, you see only your two selves in the world, only the heaven of your happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility toward the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status, an office. I would imagine when you got married, you did so because you loved the person to whom you said, I do. That's normally the case. But if you really understand what's at stake in a marriage, that's no longer your most important concern. You're now embroiled in something far greater than your own love and happiness. You see, God has first dibs on the meaning of marriage. All marriages belong to him. And God wants your marriage to bring him glory. Heaven has its eyes on you and your spouse and your marriage. Certainly, God wants a marriage to be full of love and happy times, but those times will become more frequent when holiness, not just happiness, is your goal. You see, there's a reason we once called it holy matrimony. Well, with the time I have left this morning, I want us to begin to focus on the role play between a husband and a wife. How each spouse should march and stay in step. For according to Ephesians chapter 5, a husband needs to act out Jesus' responsibilities to his church. Whereas the wife portrays the church's duty and attitude toward Christ. In short, husbands should love their wives. And wives should respect their husbands. Today we're going to talk about the wife's role. And ladies... For no other reason than that's just what comes first in the text, okay? <laughs> Next week, we'll speak to the husbands. Well, let's read again God's word to the wives, verse 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ... So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. As Christ is to the church, the husband is the head and savior of his wife. Put those two things together and it adds up to servant leadership. A head provides leadership and coordination. A servant rescues and enhances. This is a husband's role toward his wife. Whereas the wife is called on to submit to her husband's leadership. And the mere sound of that word, submit, causes some of you ladies to bristle up. You'd think I just uttered a four-letter word rather than a six. 
Wives, we got some work to do this morning. The Greek word translated submit is hupotasso. It means to arrange under. The wife arranges or orders her life around her husband's. She plays off his lead. It reminds me of Scottie Pippen. Any of you remember Scottie? He had a successful basketball career for the Chicago Bulls. He played with the greatest player of his era, Michael Jordan. And you see, that worked in Scottie's favor. For Jordan drew the double teams and he would pass to a wide open Pippen. Scottie got the rebounds when defenders left him to stop Jordan. Scottie Pippen became a superstar in his own right by letting Jordan be Jordan and playing off his lead. And this is what a submissive wife does. She lets her husband lead and she tailors her game to complement his. You see, the Chicago Bulls won six NBA championships because Scottie Pippen was willing to reel it in and accept a subordinate role. He acted for the good of the team. If he had fought with Michael Jordan for control, the Bulls would have been a second-tier team. Rather, he embraced his role in a bigger mission. And this is the attitude of a godly wife. For the glory of God, for the good of your marriage, a godly wife submits. Submission is living sub or under the mission of God's plan for marriage. A godly wife sees the big picture. This is God's wedding portrait. And both she and her husband have a special role to play. This is what Paul means in verse 22 by adding a little caveat. As to the Lord. A godly wife sees submission to her husband as part of her obedience to Christ. Now some domineering men, they misinterpret the phrase as to the Lord. To mean that a wife should obey her husband to the same extent that she obeys Christ. But this is a wrong understanding. The Bible requires total submission to no one but Jesus. A wife's submission has its limits. If following her husband ever causes her to compromise her faith, she should obey Jesus, not her husband. In Acts chapter 5, when the Jewish Sanhedrin told Peter to stop preaching Christ, he told them, we ought to obey God rather than men. There's always limits on our submission to human authority whether it's a husband or an employer or a pastor or a government. Again, this phrase, as to the Lord, means that for a believing wife, submission to her husband is part of Christian discipleship. It's part of her discipleship. She follows Jesus by following her husband. She trusts the Lord to guide her spouse. See, I once read a Newsweek article. I'll never forget reading the article. It was entitled, How to Stay Married. The reporter interviewed younger couples who were committed to marriage, and they wanted to make theirs last. But none of them had agreed on a structure that really worked. One couple was quoted as saying, With both our parents, the father is king and the mother is subordinate. We want our relationship to be much more equal. But then the article added, Neither of them has figured out how to translate that into reality. You see, here's the problem. Two heads sounds like a great idea until you try it in the arena of the day-to-day. Over time, it's an unworkable arrangement. Two heads are against nature. Hey, your body has one head, not two. Have you noticed? If it had two heads, you'd always be arguing with yourself. The same is true in marriage. In marriage, there's discussion, even debate. 
But ultimately, someone has to cast the deciding vote. And in God's portrait, that's the husband. I've heard it put this way. Marriage is like riding a horse. Only one person at a time can ride in the front. Certainly, none of this means that a wife can't have a life. Of course she can. She can pursue her own interests and concerns and ambitions. But submission means that she chooses to arrange her pursuits around her husband. Once Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, commented, the best advice I can give to unmarried girls is to marry someone you don't mind adjusting to. God tailors the wife to fit the husband, not the husband to fit the wife. When it comes to most decisions at the Adams house, I solicit my wife's opinion. I'd be dumb not to. She's a wise woman. She has the gift of discernment. But Kathy and I have agreed that we want our marriage to paint a divine picture. And thus she's cool with me having the ultimate call. I have that responsibility. At the Adams house, the buck stops with the buck. One day, God is going to hold me, not my wife, responsible for the overall direction of my family. Kathy's role is to support and submit, whereas my role is to love and to lead. This is a challenge for me. This is a comfort for her. Let me say, I'm sure you can conjure up other marital arrangements that work for a time. But God's plan is about more than what works. It's about the spiritual truths that he wants to convey through the institution of marriage. Remember, marriage is God's idea. It's not yours or mine. And God can arrange it however he pleases. Actually, what works may be the last consideration in a marriage. In most marriages, God's blueprint is probably the least rational or logical arrangement. For generally speaking, women are smarter than men. I'll never forget a quote from the former mayor of Ottawa, Canada. Charlotte Witten was giving advice to young girls about the challenges that they would face if they pursued a career in politics. She observed, whatever women must do, they must do twice as well as men to be thought half as good. And then she added, Luckily, this is not difficult. <laughs> it's often true. The wife is smarter than her husband. And this is why Christian women struggle so with this concept of submission. They're tempted to take back the reins from their husbands since it's so easy for them to do so. Usually the man is quite dense. A wife is quicker to figure it out and size it up. That's why she has to have patience and trust the Lord to grow her husband. This is part of her submission. Recently, I went down to the library to do some research, and I asked the librarian for the book, Man, the Superior Species. The librarian just laughed and pointed to the fiction section. <laughs> I've heard it put, if you think men and women are equal, just watch a man try to wrap a Christmas present. Women have gifts that are secretly envied. It reminds me of the time after the fall of mankind when Adam and Eve, they had that argument. You know, they, it happened to them too. They, they got into a big argument. Adam shouted at Eve, how in the world could God make you so beautiful and yet so dumb at the same time? That's when Eve answered, 
God made me beautiful so you would marry me and dumb so I would marry you. (laughs) And this is my point. Why should men lead and women follow? Well, in the end, my friend, there's really only one reason. And it's not as logical as it is biblical. The reason men need to lead and women should follow is because God said so. God said so. And God owns marriage. This is God's order for marriage and for the church. It's the role play that he wants conducted among us. Years ago, there was a billboard up on Highway 78 that advertised Virginia Slim cigarettes. A pretty woman was blocking the path of a young man. And the ad's caption read, Who cares who wears the pants? And every time I drove past that billboard, I screamed at the top of my lungs, God cares! Don't you get it? God cares. He has roles that he wants to be played. If you need more proof of this than Ephesians 5, read 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Peter 3. It's all over the Bible. If you're a Christian, your marriage should be God's wedding picture. At home and in the church, God uses gender to portray heavy, spiritual, eternal realities. We preach the gospel when husbands lead lovingly and when wives submit willingly. And folks, notice, ladies, your girlfriends will ask, why in the world do you submit to your husband? Suddenly, that becomes a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel in your relationship with Jesus. I'm not a big fan of these modern translations of the Bible that are all on the market today. But recently, I did read a verse from the Amplified Version that intrigued me. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33 in the Amplified Bible tells us, However, let each man of you, without exception, love his wife as being, in a sense, his very own self. And let the wife see that she respects and reverences her husband, that she notices him, regards him, honors him, prefers him, venerates and esteems him, and that she defers to him, praises him, and loves and admires him exceedingly. Wow. Did they leave anything out? Men, if you want to run down to the bookstore this afternoon and purchase a few copies, that's the Amplified Bible. Get them while they last. But let me just sum up the verse in a single word. Respect. Read again verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Wives need love while husbands need respect. Think about it. God knew before time began that he would order the family as he has. Thus, there's no surprise that he would wire the sexes accordingly. Since husbands are told to love their wives, it's interesting that wives need love from their husbands. They need their husbands' love. And since wives or to submit to their husbands, it's no surprise that a husband's biggest need is his wife's respect. Notice here, Paul doesn't even tell the wives to love their husbands. A man feels your love, ladies, through your respect. 
In Dr. Laura Schlesinger's book, The Proper Care in Feeding of Husbands, she makes a big deal about a man's need for respect. She quotes a few callers into a radio show who focus on this point. A man named Dan writes, Men need only appreciation, honest love, and respect. This will be repaid by laying the moon and stars at your feet for your pleasure. There is no need to work a man to get what you want. We live to take care of a wife, family, and home. Just remember that we are men and know that our needs are simple, but they're not to be ignored. A good man is hard to find, not hard to keep. Edgar says this, There are a few things that men want so bad they would do anything for it. I think a good number of men want respect more than love. And here are comment, comments from three female callers. Tammy makes this statement. My father's advice when I married was, you are marrying a man. Always treat him like one and he will always act like one. A woman named Wendy had this to say. It is easy for a woman to love. That is the way God made her. It is more difficult for her to show respect. And finally, Jeanette, I think men need respect. And the more respect they're shown, the more love they give in return. And I think all three of these women know a lot about men. Ladies, please realize the opposite of submission is competition. God created woman to compliment her husband, not compete for control. Trust me, a war, a battle of the sexes is not what your marriage needs. Here's a truth every woman needs to hear. When a wife declares war on her husband, he cannot win. If a wife wants to fight with her husband for the reins of the family, that man is destined to be miserable. He'll just cave in. He'll just give up. You see, men are taught from an early age not to fight with girls. The outcome is never, ever good for the guy. I mean, if the man hits her back, that's really bad, really, really bad. He sleeps on the couch, or he goes to jail, or she leaves with the kids, and he's stuck with some hefty alimony payments. Whereas if the husband caves in, he's not a real man. He feels castrated. He was beat up by a girl, and it's hard to live with yourself when that happens. For a time, a man may try to shout and scream and argue with a rebellious wife. But he's not as good with words as she is. He's certainly not as good with tears as she is. He just can't compete. And so here's what most guys do. They withdraw. They vacate. They go out and live in the garage for the most part. Or they hang out with their buddies. Or they work a lot of overtime. Or they take up golf. Or they buy season tickets. Or they just go fishing. They abandon the headship and leadership of their family. Hey, if a wife wants to lead, her husband will let her. Proverbs 19 verse 13 states, The contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. Ever had a dripping faucet? It's not a pleasant sound. Quite frankly, it drives you nuts. Water torture is the way wartime armies interrogate their prisoners 
and pry out from them national secrets. Ladies, you don't want to be a dripping faucet. A competitive wife who undermines her husband's leadership is a form of torture. Proverbs 21 verse 19 puts it. Better to dwell in the wilderness. I mean, total isolation is preferred than with a contentious and angry woman. Here's my point. Husbands can lovingly lead their wives just as Jesus leaves the church. But a wife can either undermine or undergird that leadership. I know Christian men who plaster a smile across their face and they mask a deep down hurt they feel inside. It's painful to be stripped of your manhood and be emotionally castrated day after day. To be taken for granted and disrespected and get treated like a boy instead of a man. And then the wife wonders why he's so distant. Come on, ladies. Once there was a new group of male applicants. They arrived in heaven. Peter kind of looked them over and he said, all right. I want all the henpecked husbands over here on my left. And I want all the husbands who are bold leaders over here on my right. Well, the crowd began to shuffle and kind of rearrange themselves. And finally, every one of the men were on Peter's left. Except one fellow standing there on the right. Peter kind of looked him over. What a special guy. He demanded to know. He said, you mean to tell me you're the only man in heaven who stood up and refused to be dominated by his wife? The man answered him. He said, listen, buddy, please don't get mad at me. I'm just standing where my wife told me to stand. <laughs> Ladies, I got news for you. Men are real simple. I mean, caring for a husband is like operating a broom. This isn't complicated. Men are different from women. With the man, you don't have to throw a lot of switches. Men are predictable. They're not, this is not rocket science. Men thrive off their wife's respect. God calls a husband to lead. But if he's to be the leader that his wife really desires, he needs her respect. In fact, a wife can say she loves her husband all she wants. But he doesn't acknowledge her love. It doesn't really register with him until it's shown in the form of her respect. Wives, the way your husband measures love is not by your words or your mushiness. But do you show him respect? Do you appreciate what he does for you and the kids? Or do you always complain? Is it never enough? Do you value his efforts or do you ignore him? Do you chip away at his confidence with biting remarks? The late pastor, E.V. Hill, he struggled financially in the early days of his ministry. One night he came home to a dark house. He opened the door and he saw his wife, Jane. She had prepared a candlelight dinner for two. He thought, how nice. He went into the restroom to wash his hands, but he went to flip the switch. The lights wouldn't turn on. He flipped it several times. He finally walked back into the kitchen and he asked his wife, why weren't the lights still on? His wife started to cry. She said, you work so hard. We're trying. But I just didn't have enough money to pay the bill this month. I didn't want to discourage you. So I thought we'd just eat by candles. 
Dr. Hill finishes the story. Jane could have said, I've never been in this situation before. I was reared in the home of a father who provided for his family, who never let his lights be cut off. She could have demoralized me. Instead, she said, somehow we'll get the lights back on. But tonight, let's eat by candles. Ladies, your part is to submit to your husband and show him respect. But that's an understating your role. It's bigger than that. Because of how God wires a husband, your respect has a powerful sway over that man for better or for worse. You can lift him to amazing heights with your support or you can tear him down with your disrespect. Oh, but my husband doesn't deserve my respect. He's made so many mistakes and you're probably right. He probably deserves your respect about as much as you deserve the love of Jesus. In the end, a wife submits to her husband, not when he deserves it, but because God commands it. God is painting a picture. It's a wedding photo of Christ and his church. And he wants you and your spouse to pose for the picture. Husband, love your wife like Christ loves. And wife, respect and submit to your husband. Here's a final question. If little green Martians landed their flying saucer in your backyard and they came out and they approached your kids and they said, take me to your leader, would your kids take them to mom or to dad? And if your kids would get it wrong or if they would just draw a blank and not really know, it means that the picture isn't being painted as clearly as it should be. Let's make sure the roles we're playing in our marriage are faithful to the picture that God wants drawn. Hey, does anybody see Jesus in the gospel in your marriage? Remember, we are God's wedding pictures.